0: Hey, this is Anthony, and I'm the host of What They Did Not Teach You in School, the podcast that interviews people to get their wisdom recorded so that hopefully you could learn some things that are not taught in school but should be taught in school. I'd like to remind people that a lot of the things talked about on this podcast relate to investing and finance. The purpose of talking about these subjects are to hopefully inform people and educate them on financial literacy and to entertain people with some do's and do nots. This is not to be considered financial advice. Before trying anything that you learn on the podcast, be sure to consult a professional. Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of What They Didn't Teach You in School. This is episode 43. Wow, 43 and we have a very special guest on the podcast today, Raymond Look. Very happy to uh, have you on today. Thanks for coming in. Great to be here. Um, So Raymond is the founder of Hockey Stick and Flow Ventures, and he's really active in the Canadian uh, entrepreneurship ecosystem. Um, And for that reason, I wanted to have you on in order to talk about fundraising, entrepreneurship, where Canada and Toronto is going in regards to the like growth of their tech ecosystem and entrepreneurship in general, and just get some of your wisdom uh, that is in that head of yours out to our audience. I will try to get, I'll try to have some wisdom, but then I'll try to
1: get it out of my head. Into I will
0: try and audience. pull it out of your head. Okay. We'll I, do it together. My job is to pull it out of your head. Your job is just to be you. Let's do it. All right. So before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Crater Club. Crater Club is a platform that connects brands and creators in order to work in symbiosis to create content at scale. Um, is also one of the leading advocates for the creator economy here in Canada um, and is here right in Toronto. And I also want to thank Valentina, producer extraordinaire behind the camera. Thank you for coming and filming today, putting everything together. Okay, Raymond, so for the people that don't know much about you, what makes you tick? What are you up to right now?
1: You know, it's a great time to ask that question for me because I've lately I've just been really interested in, in kind of going back to my roots and thinking about, you know, answering that, that question. Like what do, you know, what do I care about? And and I spent the last 27 years with entrepreneurs and building companies and, and being in venture for a while. And and when I turned 50, I kind of said, you know, what do I really care about? And I but I grew up in a in a household of teachers. And so lately I've just been really um, enjoying getting out there and teaching and writing. I started writing a newsletter um, almost a year ago now. And it's it's one of these things where I said, if I want to learn something, I should probably write about it. Maybe, I don't know if everyone else thinks that way, but that's the way I think about it. And and so I started writing, and then that led to doing some online workshops during the pandemic uh, called Pitch Lab. Um, I've done some live workshops now and and do some coaching, mentoring. So it's it's not kind of my full time thing, but it's something that I'm I'm really passionate about. That's kind of my jam.
0: That's interesting because yeah, my mom is a teacher as well, and I like grew up. She either taught me or uh, I was a part of different kinds of things um, extracurricularly. Yeah, working at her school and like teaching. Yeah, so me too. And I feel like um, uh, as you get older, you have the ability to like impart your wisdom and do more teaching. Um, did you find that? you've always been that kind of mindset and like wanting to teach other people or is it now in your older age, maybe with more financial security or whatever that you have the ability to do these things more that you want to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks
0: for calling me of of older age. I I appreciated that. (laughs)
1: Um, no, just kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think actually I've always enjoyed teaching since I was a kid. Like I grew up in music. That was my thing. So I grew up playing piano. And then, you know, when you're like a preteen teen and you, can't get a job somewhere, and it turns out that you can teach piano and actually make money. Uh, that, that was pretty great. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've, I always really liked teaching. I don't think I was very good at it when I started, but, um, but I, th- I think I, I, you know, me subconsciously really liked doing it. And then for me, I mean, I, I went into business without a business background, I mean, we'll talk about that later probably, yeah. but going from a musician sitting in a, you know, studio practicing to being the CEO of a company kind of overnight. Was um, a learning experience. So one one advantage of kind of having that mindset of I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, and I need to learn is that it kind of puts you into that learning mode where you're soaking up everything you're reading. You don't really have an ego about it, mm-hmm. and I think that's a good attitude to have when you're thinking about teaching too. It's it's you know a not to have an ego about you know I'm not smarter than you or I'm not necessarily even more wise than you. I, I might be more experienced in certain things. Um, it's a good attitude to have as a teacher, but I think it gives me some, some empathy for um, people that I work with, right? Oh, yeah. oh, they're, you know, I can really tell when they're in kind of sponge mode and they're just soaking up everything. I love that. And I can also tell when they're maybe not ready and
0: they're they're pushing back. I like that. And actually, I want to talk about that a little bit right now because – Um, When I was looking into you, I did an extensive creep online of like your background, what people say about you, etc. One thing that I found is super interesting is that you did study music in your undergrad, and then you went into business. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your mindset? What was going on during that period of time? How did that transition work? Yeah, it was just, you know, I've always just pursued my interest. I didn't really kind of overthink
1: my career. I don't think I ever thought about my career. Like one thing about going in, I was in classical music too, so it's like a niche of a niche of a niche. It's when you're in classical music, I don't know that you have an expectation that you're going to be able to earn money and Mm -hmm. eat and things like that. It's just, it's not really something that you plan for, although I I do know a very small number of people who did. So it was just, I was just doing it because I enjoyed it. And then I ended up with a bunch of free time. Um, In university, I'd placed out of a lot of credits, so I just had to do stuff. And so I started spending a lot of time in the computer lab. So the, I was at McGill, uh, the faculty of music. This was, you know, in the 90s. So, you know, before like people had intranet, mm-hmm. before Netscape, before this is really dating myself now. <laughs> but but I only bring it up because it was kind of a fun time. It wasn't like everyone had an iPhone and a computer at home and high speed internet. It was you go to a room where they have these exotic computers like Silicon Graphics and Sun Microsystems and and early Apple, like crappy, crappy Apple machines, but with high-speed internet, right? Mm. So I think I kind of fell in love with that world and um, and then said said to myself kind of in that naive way, which I think all entrepreneurs do this, they're like, it can't be that hard to start a company. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty smart, I know computers, let's start a company and, that, and, and that's what I did. Wasn't a lot of thought, but I actually think that's the right mindset
0: when you start something, because otherwise you'll never start. Anymore. Right, right. If you knew how hard it actually was. Totally. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. So, yeah. um, so right out of undergrad, did you go and work or were you like, let's actually start a company here? What, what was your thoughts or how did that progress?
1: Yeah, actually, I did work for
0: um, six months
1: as a programmer. Oh, and I worked at this kids uh, games company where it was kind of when I figured out that I could program like I, I was a self-taught software developer and and so I was started off like debugging kids games like on CD-ROMs and cool. like old school like it was but it was a great training and and I was also developing some of my own stuff on the side but it was the first time that I, I really worked in that field it only lasted six months um, I'll never forget the the I think when I when I quit uh, the owner sat me down and said Raymond you know. You are never going to be successful as an entrepreneur. Whoa! And why? You, know, you, th- you think you're so smart, but you're not. And you know, I'm going to make it so that you can't succeed in this town. And it was like l- literally out of a movie. And obviously, I didn't care at the time, but right. I just thought, like, that's not very nice.
0: No, what um, the hell what was wrong with that guy?
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that was just that was just him personality. But but yeah. And then I you know started a, a company. Um, with a fantastic name called Hard Boiled Egg. And I think I named it Hard Boiled Egg because the domain name was available. <laughs> and uh, it was, I just thought, well, Apple called their name, like called their company a fruit, so I can call mine a food. <laughs> and, but but the one thing that I learned out of naming, and and I'm, I'm somebody who thinks he's good at naming, so I, that doesn't mean I'm good at naming, but I enjoy it, is that, Always name your company or product something memorable and something kind of aspirational, not something accurate. Mm. Because, you know, what does HeartBold Egg mean? What does Apple mean? What what does Netscape mean? Anything. Right. So, one great thing about that name was that, you know, we ended up with an egg shaped conference table, you Mm -hmm. know, as one can imagine, an egg shaped logo. We had all kinds of fun stuff. And when we would call, we did a lot of work with the government, actually. And they just loved working with us because every time we, we picked up the phone and called them, on the call display, it would say hard-boiled egg and they just thought that was the funniest thing. <laughs> so I think that got us some business but, yeah, yeah. Um, but no it was a, it was a real it was like an MBA in, in business just running a business, which I highly recommend right yeah, I'd say it's probably better than an MBA to it just is, run the business. yeah and I, I went back and did an MBA ten years later. Um, you know and but if, if you if a founder asked me today, should I do an MBA? I say, well, you should do it if you want to learn, because it's fantastic. I think, do many degrees, learn. You know, don't be dumb. Mm-hmm. But if you want to, if your goal is to start a company, then just start the company. And I learned about you know balance sheets and income statements from reading the QuickBooks help files, because I was like, typing in my receipts and things. I didn't understand why I put something in and it wasn't showing up on my p I did this back in the day, I knew nothing about accounting. Yeah. So I looked up the Intuit help files and they're like, well, that's because it's on the balance sheet. Well, what is the balance sheet? And and so these are things that I had to learn how to think like an entrepreneur quickly. Mm-hmm. We had no, no credit, like no loans, no venture, no investment, at least for the, the first while. So it was very much um, eat
0: what you kill and um, survival teaches you a lot. Agreed, and I think that's one of the things that uh, makes great entrepreneurs, especially ones that start ventures and grow them, is the ability to just like, "What is that? Okay, let me figure it out." Yeah, and I think now, because you know, we have this kind of advice industrial complex about
1: startups now, but right? everyone's telling everyone what to do, and VCs are telling entrepreneurs what to do, and other founders. It's it's just this whole like SEO tweet storm of like advice, <laughs> and you know, I think that. One of the things that I like about founders who've run a like a service business is that you have these cycles. You have an idea, you have a product, you have to deliver it. You've got customers, you've got cash in, you've got cash out. It, it's 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 a business, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, now the advice is everyone has to think about runway, cash, uh, visibility to profitability, unit economics, all that stuff. But you know, 18 months ago, it was, you know, cash is is Cash flow is stupid. <laughs> uh, that's a lifestyle business, you're a loser if you're thinking about that, it's growth and, and there's just a cycle, right? So I think that people who've gone through or run a consulting business service business or just a profitable business have a, a kind of an insight into that's just reality, that's how capitalism works. And um, it's useful you know as you run any kind of business, even if it's more kind of you know venture backed, more like in the future but at the end of the day even if you sell the company
0: some somebody's buying it for some future cash flow right right so oh good perspective yeah because uh you you definitely heard that term getting tossed around like oh it's a lifestyle is it a lifestyle business or is it a venture-backed kind of like play yeah i hate that that term and
1: whenever i hear people say that now i actually um actively publicly correct them and and the opposite of a venture backed company is not is not a lifestyle business right the the, the the opposite of a venture back company is just a company right I think we just have these weird terms but you know I actually heard recently there was a Forbes article about something they call ecosystem two I don't okay, know if you've heard no I've heard of this no and I actually like that because you know ecosystem one is is venture backed high growth high risk power law you know all in unicorn and but that's a very 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 small percentage of, of all business right uh, even in tech so but the opposite of that used to be like lifestyle, basically, you know, VCs consciously or unconsciously calling people losers. Like you're, <laughs> you're, you're not venture back because you're not ambitious enough. You know, I've literally heard this so many times. So the idea of saying if it's not venture, it's lifestyle is actually ridiculous. And But the idea of calling it ecosystem too, I like, because it's just a different ecosystem, right? It's not one that's less ambitious. Maybe it's one that's just funded differently, right? So if you... If you raised a uh, you know hundred million dollars in a different like a non venture way, you're still not a venture back company.
0: Right. Yeah. Doesn't mean you're not a great company. Right. Interesting. And so, what's ecosystem one? That's the VC one, right? That's ah, the I see.
1: Like, and I think most founders have this um, idea that ecosystem one is is what we want because it's where you know the facebooks and the airbnbs and those people were born, which is which is true. Right, and it's capable of creating amazing companies, but I also think that there's a lot of companies from like the MailChimps and the Zapier's and other people that that didn't raise venture, right? Either or um, my favorite is and the Canadian story is um, Plenty of Fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, it's really, I'm like that's my that's my dream. Like, this is everyone, everyone in Canada's dream should be like Marcus Frein's company. How so? S- start a business where you're living at home it's the business is like in your closet somewhere and you're just like doing your thing and, you know, not, not working so hard at the beginning and it's and it's making $10 million a year in revenue. It's growing, you don't know what to do. And then eventually you sell it for half a billion dollars, right? <laughs> and you never had a single investor.
0: Was plenty of fish at Canadian company? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know Vancouver that. Vancouver-based. Oh, wow. Yeah,
1: so, so it's a great, if you think about it, like why ecosystem one is so powerful in the minds of founders is that It's just this media thing, right? You hear this, you hear so much about it, but you don't hear about like plenty of fish is an ecosystem two company. Hmm. You don't really hear about it that much, and that's because I guess there's less media attention on, you know, it's it's less like rags to riches, uh, you know, young, usually young men, you know, starting companies. That was always the the kind of myth of like twenty four year old uh, hoodie wearing dude in Stanford, and and it's all it's all great, it's all true, but kind of hides the fact that like capitalism is much more
0: diverse than that. Right. So, so I like hearing different stuff. I love that perspective. Why has the sentiment changed over the last five years um from, you know, let's go heavy, venture back to now people are so concerned with cash flow and sustainability? Yeah, it's just just the economy, right? So, you know, as you know, like
1: things go up and they go down and when they're going up, you forget they, they can go down. And, and who knows, but it's it's always a cycle. I think that, um, you know, the reason you hear so much chatter is first you hear about layoffs, you hear about, you know, capital drying up as, you know, in every cycle, right? When things go south, capital dries up and, and that's part of the normal cycle. It, it sucks, but it's kind of, that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. You would do the same thing if you're running a fund too, you'd be more conservative. right? So Fair. I think you're hearing a lot of chatter about that because, you know, those, funds that invested in companies those companies have to survive now what if you invested at a amazing valuation this amazing company that you believe in but it has no cash flow yet right because you're like yeah we'll worry about that in the future right now that's great when the market's going up because there's always somebody else maybe it's you who is going to double down and double down and keep keep going right that's amazing but if that you know if the musical chairs stop then it's like, oh crap, we need to get money somewhere. What are these people over here? Oh, they're called customers, and <laughs> we, let's see if we can get them to give us money. And like, oh, they don't want to give us money because our product sucks, or we didn't really think about it. Uh, I'm, I'm joking. Everyone thinks about customers, right? But it's now people are kind of back to basics, and and I think that this is something that entrepreneurs, like going back to what we were talking about, of the advantage of running some kind of. Consulting business, service business—something simple is it reminds you that, you know, your company is always those things, those fundamental things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how big it is. You might think that your company is like about tech and and finance and all these exotic, amazing things. At the end of the day, it's it's really about creating value for somebody, right? Right. And and when you're doing consulting business, let's say it's like you're one consultant. Let's say I'm a consultant and you're my client. I'm sitting across the table from you. I look in your eyes and I know whether I've done a good job. Right, right. It's, there's no Google Analytics between us. It's just, <laughs> just me and you and a bubbly, uh, uh, fizzy <laughs> water, and, and that's it. So it's, I think that's a really good kind of honest
0: way to start. Nice. Yeah, it's true. And I, I forget where I heard this quote from, but uh, it was the best way to raise money is from your customers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of people
1: forget that, right? Yeah. And, and one thing, it's like once you start down a path, though, it's hard to change so if you're you know freemium or you're a saas business acquiring customers um, super high acquisition costs because you know you can raise money for the for the dip it's really hard to pivot that um, you know i think that's where a lot of the 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 pain is happening in the market is is not that they're they're not great companies out there it's just companies raising on one set of assumptions and then it's really hard to go you know oh 180 degrees now we're going to be uh, just about customers and revenue, firing non-performing customers, um, maybe firing non-performing employees, which is which is happening now. Yeah. All those things that, that
0: it's just reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that I love. Uh, I'm a big like history uh, nerd. Mm. Um, long time ago, last fifty years, it's, yeah. it's interesting to me. And something that I really enjoy doing is interviewing people who have been in business during the '90s. And the early two thousands, and are still in business today. Yeah. So uh, you started your first startup, um, and it was a hard-boiled egg, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, what was what did you guys do in that startup? It was an agency. It oh, was like, agency? A, like a, it was like an early kind of web
1: development agency. Okay, cool. You know, back in the day. And what made you stop that company? Yeah, it was. So it was really interesting. As I started that company, it was profitable. It was growing. Yep. We made money. It was amazing. I was like. You know, I was really happy, and and we kind of um, were starting out in a time when people were discovering that hey, we need to build things on the internet and on the web, and we don't know how to do this, so that's why we we were successful, right? So we, we had lots of people calling us to help them build stuff, and then and then we started having our own ideas for products, mm. and and it was right around I think ninety nine into into two thousand, and um, we had this idea and. Um, And then VCs started calling. I remember people from like Goldman Sachs from New York would fly up. I was was living in Montreal at the time and I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) But they would come in and just to see me and and people were doing IPOs on just crazy things. And so, you know, we, I think we had this idea like we're going to start this other company and and maybe try to do both or do product. And this is when things are really complicated. I would not recommend people doing this.
0: Uh, Why so? uh,
1: it's it's really hard to run two companies at once, and um, it's hard when when the you've got two competing things, and you think that oh, but you know we can do two things at once because it's efficient. It's like having two restaurants with one kitchen, but at a certain point, those kitchen like you know those restaurants compete with each other mm. for if they're successful, and and that's you know partly what happened with with me and the second company is called OpenDesk, which I still think is a great name too. Um, and it was more of like, think of it like a like early Google apps. So, you know, email, like everything on the web, documents, mm-hmm. calendaring, everything, but in like 1999. So, you know, hindsight, like maybe like 15 years ahead of its time. So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, lesson number one is timing is really important. Um, but, you know, we, we raised a bunch of money. Um, we spun that out. I ended up, you know, moving over, over to take like that part of the business over when I realized I was just too stressed out and mm-hmm. I couldn't run two businesses. Um, and then in in 2001, um, you know, things started going south. The the dot com bubble kind of burst, and I'll never forget. There's a really visual way for anyone who who's who's too young to to know this that there used to be this um, magazine called Red Herring, and there's lots of big tech magazines so. A, it doesn't exist and B, nobody reads magazines anymore. So <laughs> um, ancient, but you're, you're the one who brought up history. So, but it was thick, like it was like a Cosmo mag- magazine, like thick, 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 all full of tech ads. Mm. And we were an advertiser, lots of other people. And a lot of people who were customers of openness were you were know, venture funded startups way back. And then we all crashed together because they all went out of business. And then that red herring magazine went from massive to, it was like a <laughs> pamphlet, right, in like three months. Um, you know, IPOs were pulled, we, we had a, um, we had VCs on our board that had uh, given us a certain amount of money, and then was, there's was going to be another tranche. And then we had a board meeting, they're like, nope, you're not getting any of that money. There's no more money anywhere. Sorry. So what was that like? You're the literally close up shop, right? Yeah, like we we did, like, the only thing I'll say that's something I learned later on is like, you can't always control the outcome, right? you know, even though we all want to, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and everyone feels shame if if a company doesn't work, or even I think if a project doesn't work, people you know don't only really talk about it, but they feel like sense of failure. Um, but I think what I learned is that you can't always control the outcome, but you can control how you behave. And so my CFO and I had said like, this company is like not structured to be like this profitable services company. It's a venture-backed company that was had certain assumptions. It's not going to be able to raise money. Nobody's going to buy the company because every, all those other companies who were who would buy it are also going out of business. <laughs> so we, we kind of decided the best thing we can do is um, sell as many of the assets as we can, wind it down, and you know, make sure the employees are well taken care of. And then, you know, I kind of committed to being, you know, the last person there, and you know, turning the lights off, selling the furniture, and doing everything that I could humanly possible to do right by my investors and my employees and and um you know i kept in touch with a lot of these people over decades who said later that you know they they compared to many other companies who also suffered during that time they really appreciated the
0: the work the integrity and and that's um it sucks yeah but you know that must have been a hard time for you yeah it was probably a hard time for a lot of people yeah during that period because you go through this amazing like bull market during the 90s where everyone's having a great time making money to just like yeah. dead in water. I mean, yeah, for sure. In the time, like you need to give time. But but I think
1: one of the things about being an entrepreneur, it's just the concept of like creative destruction that like shit happens and things are going to happen. But um, I think the person who gets overly discouraged and says, oh, we've disproven that, that didn't work, we failed, I quit, you know, I'm going to go be an accountant or Get something. Get a job at the bank. Yeah, like that's, that's, um, that's one, one type of person. The entrepreneur says man, that really sucks. That's really painful. But oh, man, what about this other idea? Or <laughs> oh, what about this other thing? And it's just like this pathological need to just create new things. And and one of the things that when something goes away, what it gives the the entrepreneur is just time. And all of a sudden, it's like, holy crap, I have all this time to think now. And so I wasn't really worried about, you know, like, I, I, I'm i generally a forward looking person, not backwards. And And again, having that confidence of having started a company, being a classical musician and starting two companies and making money and, you know, doing things early in my career, um, it, it kind of just gave me confidence to say, don't worry about it.
0: Just keep going. And, and um, that's what I did. Okay. Yeah. Because many people, I want to ask you about your mindset on this, because even like myself, like, I don't want to fail. I'd be really pissed off or yeah. down on myself maybe if I failed like that. Yeah. Um, and many entrepreneurs are like that. They might have started their first company. May Let's say 100 people start a company. Yeah. A lot of them are going to fail, 999 of them. Yeah. Or 99 of them. Yeah. Um, and then the majority of them won't try the second time. Yeah. And then even the ones that try the second time, if they fail, they won't try a third time. Yeah. Which is a shame, right? Because you you learn so much more when things don't
1: work out than when, when they do. I mean, the reality is that even if I think about successes that I've had and things when they've gone well, you know, I can't take all the credit, as much as I'd like to, but I can't take all the credit. <laughs> you know, there's there's other people, there's luck, there's timing, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. When you fail, though, it's, it's clearer, like, oh, th- this is a lesson that's very crystal clear that I can learn, right? mm. which... You know, maybe it's something I did, or a mindset, or, or all those things. Um, so it's a shame when when people um, you know, try things and, and it doesn't work out, and they don't try something else. That's the best time mm-hmm. because you have this incredible experience. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably just personality. Um, I think my view is that, like, having started lots of companies and I work with founders every single day, is that like I see the failures every single day, like every pitch. Every product, every bug, like that's just life. You know, there's nothing is perfect when you're starting something small, and and so, you know, you, you kind of get used to it. That it's just part of the journey, and and don't don't try to like like a failure of like your software product. Let's say you're building a software product, is not is not a failure of your character. It's just stuff happens. It's hard, mm-hmm. and let's say you want to raise money, you can't. It's not a failure of you are bad. And the market says you personally are bad. It's just the market's the market. So
0: I love that. You got to learn to, to kind of move on. I love that. Um, when you started these companies, I want to start moving into now like the 2000s. Yeah. Um, when you started these companies, was it always you? Did you have business partners that you started with? Yeah, it was mostly always me.
1: Like that's not something I would do differently. So, you know, I've I've always been kind of solo founder, and then brought in let's say another tier of people. But I think, you know, my advice to people now is don't do that because it's it's really hard, and also um, it's it's a lot of weight to carry, and and also there's too much pressure for one person to have all the skills, even the the network. I can't know everybody, so I think having um, having more co-founders, like you know, let's say a team of two or three is ideal. Now you know, it's really hard to fo- to found a team. So I've got, like, I think if I can go off on a bit of a tangent of yeah, how to yeah. do that, it's what we should all do is spend way more time and go more slowly when we create companies. So we, we shouldn't incorporate companies. We shouldn't create companies. We should spend like a year working with a few people. It's not a company, just a project, part-time. We should really get to know each other and that should take as long as it should take. Mm-hmm. Maybe literally 12, uh, 12 months. Then after that, we should say, "Hey, it looks like there could be a really cool product here. Let's just start building." We should do that for another X months, maybe a year. No incorporation, no nothing, no accelerators, no raising money. Um, We should just because that's that's the way you know who you're working with. Do you have the same passions, and whether you're working on something worthwhile? I think people make a commitment way too early. Let's start a company. you get half, I get half. Let's start this. Let's do this. And you're committed. And the worst thing that can happen at that point is somebody gives you two hundred fifty thousand bucks to get started. Now you're committed, right? But, but for no reason. You don't. We don't know each other. We don't really know our product. We definitely don't know our market. And I think that something
0: I've been thinking a lot more about is why are we in such a rush? That's um, a good advice. That's good advice because you see it happen so quick, so often. It's yeah. like, oh, this idea. That's great. Okay. Then the first thing people do is incorporate. Yeah. And then yeah. okay let's get going without even like testing if this is a real thing is their product market fit one of the biggest reasons that i find that businesses fail is a misalignment of founders yeah and yeah. they start working together at yeah. a meet, like incorporating is like getting married yeah. with somebody without the yeah. romantic and sexual aspect of it yes. which makes it actually worse yeah. than a normal uh, marriage you know um and for so for that reason there should be that dating period where you really get to know each other the good things the bad things and you're okay with it yeah there's a great
1: book by noam wasserman uh, the founder's dilemmas i always probably the number one book i recommend to people Uh. unfortunately whenever i do workshops and talk i said here's the book that you should have read before you started your company but you didn't read it but you should still read it now because there's a lot of you know it's hard to renegotiate right it's hard to to say, you know, we started the company on certain assumptions which are based on absolutely nothing. And now that we know each other, things are different, but we still have the same split and it's I don't like that. And I'm resenting you. And right. so it is really hard. But I think the book goes through how to do that. And I, I recommend people do that. Because otherwise the company usually just goes goes completely boom um, in a bad way. Um, but yeah, so I, I think there's there's a lot more that a lot more thought should go into the early. Like when when I ran Year One Labs, which was this kind of venture fund, kind of venture fund slash venture studio um, in the two thousands, our we were one of the I think we were the first to say we want to we like the acceleration model, but we want to invest in the entrepreneur, not the idea, because the idea is dumb and who cares (laughs) and it's going to change. So what we did was we partnered with Google and we ran these hackathons in Montreal in in this our office we just bring a bunch of people together and just said, here's some founders. It's a fun competition for the weekend. We'll give you pizza, beer, and, and you build stuff. And then we would vote on who is the best. And then um, we did not really care about what they built, but we were looking for certain things, creativity and intelligence and compatibility. And then we funded those companies out of cool. hackathons. When was and this? This was uh, this was 2000 and." Maybe eleven. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's been a, a long time. Uh, I know. I, I should know this because it was basically the fund was. It's, it was a one year program, and we had a bunch of companies we invested in. We we um, we sold our, our first graduate was a company called Local Mind, started by uh, Lenny Rachitsky, who runs Lenny's uh, newsletter, and he sold that to Airbnb, mm. and and did really well. And he's like so talented. He would have been talented no matter what. Um, but um, but we enjoyed bringing him from San Diego to uh, Montreal in February. Uh, he'll never forget that. Um, so we sold that. Um, sold another company. Other companies had no exits. But then we just waited for Airbnb to go public for you know almost a decade. And when they went public, now we've we've you know we, we made we've made money for our investors. We we wound that down. And um, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it was a great a great success story for really like I. I'm not just saying this. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is the impact we had on the entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. including Lenny and others. That you know they were amazingly talented people. We worked with them for a short amount of time, helped them out for a short amount of time. I feel like that's what acceleration is. Mm-hmm. And whether they ended up selling their company to Airbnb or or doing something else, um, that's something I'm really proud of.
0: Amazing. Um, thanks for sharing that. So now, what were you doing during this uh, the 2000 2000- an eight roll up to like the, the recession during that period of time. And how did you get through that? And yeah, did you get like PTSD from like the yeah. dot-com bubble during that period of time? How did you navigate through that? Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start to forget some of these dates, but um, so,
1: you know, somebody can look it up and call me out on my, my, uh, my memory later. But what I remember about that kind of downturn was, was almost like I didn't really notice it that much. I think that I was doing, I was running uh, Flow Ventures at the time, so it was a already a like a successful consulting business. Mm-hmm. I was doing some um, angel investing. I was, um, I was really loving the Montreal ecosystem. We had done, we would started Startup Drinks. We were just there's so much. We we're just having so much fun. And the other thing I'll say is that compared to '99, when there was like zero ecosystem to speak of, by you know, like a decade later, there was there were VCs um there was no accelerators yet but but there were beginning to be uh, more investors and more of a like a community of founders in mm-hmm. in Toronto and and Montreal so as that was growing there was a recession but things were just growing so fast that i didn't really i didn't personally pay that much attention and it didn't really affect me because i wasn't raising money at the time um you know some of the the people like the founders i worked with it definitely they also went through tough times like i I wrote about this last year about a, a company I was advising where they were going to shut the business down. This is in Montreal. And the CEO had asked me to come in and kind of help kind of basically help tell the, the tell the news to the team. He would never done this before, right? It's a terrible thing. Um, you know, people you work with, your friends, you have to tell them you're all going to lose your jobs. And I said, well, before we do that, let's let's take a look like why are we doing this and and what's the actual situation you know the money and all that stuff And he said listen here's what we spend here's what we make you know it's just not not sustainable and then we, we kind of brainstormed a bit and i just said but have you asked people if they're willing to to help out to contribute and, he, and he, he said no so i would just i'd be ashamed to even ask right but but i knew this company was in the creative world People just loved working there, and, mm-hmm. and so we ended up coming up with a strategy where he just literally got up on a desk and he told his team that, "Listen, we're we're in this is a shit situation, and we could go out of business. But you know, if you're all willing to take a pay cut, like a fifty percent pay cut, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't, I haven't been taking a salary for six months, and um, I don't expect you to say yes." It was a very emotional kind of moment, um, but. You know, I, I don't wanna close the company without giving us this chance. And and, you know, surprisingly people said yes. And, you know, people started you know, it's like being all in the same lifeboat, mm. which as a founder is the best feeling because you spend your whole life carrying this burden of like it's all on me. If I screw it up, it's my failure. So when yeah, you know, so it's it's you in the lifeboat. But when People around you jump into the lifeboat with it, mm-hmm. with you. It's it's an incredible feeling, and then somebody came up with the idea that of actually um, dividing the office in two, like literally um, building a wall, like a drywall thing, right in the middle, because they said this could be two offices and we only need half. So let's build a wall, which they did. Let's sublet the other half of the office, and then between all those things, they were break even. And uh, amazing. So that was. It was very tough. But uh, I know people were going through those stories. For myself, it was probably also because it was the second kick at the can. It was, you know, founders, like, like, I I have this saying, which I probably stop saying now, which is, there's never a recession when you're an entrepreneur, which is not true. But I say it because it's like, it's never easy to get money as an entrepreneur. It's, It's not like, during the boom times, the banks were just throwing money at you. You want an unsecured bank loan? No problem. No <laughs> personal guarantee. That doesn't happen right. even in the best time. Yeah, yeah. So when credit is more tight, and that's just the normal default. So that's that's kind of what was my experience. Okay,
0: true. And um, so, do you have any advice for entrepreneurs going through a difficult time like right now? we're or- are we in a recession? I don't know. That's what people, the media yeah. says. Credit is tight, but yeah. I just read this morning that Canada over-exceeded their jobs um, yeah. creation. Same with the United States. So, like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Um, but currently, right now, it's a difficult time for entrepreneurs. Yeah. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, it's honestly,
1: it's like try to tune out the bullshit. Like, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's not that like, cool to say. Um, we we just want to create a great product or service and and make money and and do right by our customers and a lot of like startups a lot of founders maybe feel a bit weird saying they serve their customers I've never had an issue with that if I start a business I serve my customers that's hopefully why why I exist yeah but I think it's it's a bit of back to basics of like tune out all the bullshit you you have to create something of value pretty quickly now um, and and not kind of tune out the noise of like are you growing fast enough and you know there's this weird thing where it's like tech companies are measured by how many employees they have but it's probably a canadian thing because you know the government you know the governments like the largest lp in canada for all the vcs mm-hmm. and they and really they want to see jobs created maybe going to your statistic that's but it's a silly way to um, measure your company you should want to have the most revenue with the least employees if you're if you're a capitalist right um, but i think like and then, you know, maybe some of the other BS that's out there about people too. It's like during the boom times, everyone was uh, four-day work weeks and, um, and it's all about, you know, perks and working from home and and creating perfect conditions for everyone. Don't measure people by time, measure them by output. And, and I think a lot of that's just complete bullshit because um, I have no, you know, I, I consider myself a nice person and, and you can ask others, they might, you know, hopefully they'll agree, but it's like for me the the ultimate respect i have for for people who work is that is that i believe in them and i think that they're capable of amazing performance and amazing stuff like being smart learning all that stuff but i think people there's just all this bullshit out there about we need to create the perfect conditions for people otherwise they don't want to work mm-hmm. and uh, i don't believe that and i think that's you're starting to see that with like mass you know mass layoffs with companies that were very uh, vocal about like, perfect conditions, right. and now they're more vocal about we need performance, and and I've never th- thought of the word performance as a bad word. Like, imagine if you're an athlete, you're paid to perform, you're not right. paid to not perform, and that's not it's not a job, it's a passion. Hopefully, everyone who works has a passion. So, I think if you tune out the 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 noise, just focus on probably what in your heart you know is the right thing to do.
0: Um, and in regards to, uh, what's happening right now with work from home and coming into the office, we have this, you know, even before the pandemic, everyone was talking about just let me work from home. That's better. Right. Um, and then during the pandemic, everyone worked from home. Right. And now we're in this like weird position where people want you to come into the office uh, but it's like a hybrid. What are your thoughts on coming yeah. back, like getting back to the office culture right now? I mean, I'm I'm firm believer
1: that companies work better when people work together. And, and you know, I know not everyone believes that. That's fine. Um, I, I think that, you know, people, certainly like startups, right? Startups need to be together. I think that, yes, it's possible and, you, you know, people will give counter examples of like, this company is all remote. Sure, it can happen if you're if you're perfect and every single person you hire is in their DNA, that's how they're wired. But for the most part, you need to be together. Um, it's really hard to whiteboard over Zoom. Uh, it's really hard to be creative. You can't read body language. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like getting out in the world and getting together with people, like you, you said, like starting a company is like a marriage. It's, you know, you don't, you don't, you're not part of like you're not in your marriage by remote. Hopefully, right, long, right. long distance relationship. So I I feel like people need to be together. Now is it three days, four days? Like I don't really care, but I don't really believe in this idea that it's it's better for the company that people be distributed. I think it's better for the individual, and and that's valid. Um, but I don't think it's better for the company at all. Yeah, I think so.
0: Um, it's tough though because I also see that like when we come here on Wednesdays. Uh, everyone's in the office there's also a lot of wasted time Mm -hmm. in in being in the office together you know but i battle back and forth on it because i'll i'll walk through the office and everyone's like shooting the shit talking with each other kind of like wasting time yeah that actually people are more productive at home if you're a good worker like you're more productive at home less distractions because people are used to it now but then also that wasted time of like shooting the shit with each other actually breeds creativity, new ideas. And like that, like uncontrolled bouncing around of ideas is actually good at the same time. So I think just somewhere in the middle is the answer. Yeah. I think work is not typing.
1: Like work is not just sitting in front of your computer. I mean, what is, what is work? What is creativity? I think it's, you know, I, I think what I'm saying is that, that creative energy between people and, you know, the like, I think people forget that when you're doing anything worthwhile, taking risks, you have doubts. You don't know, especially if you're in a startup, no matter how confident you are, you don't really know. And I think artists are like this too. When they're you're painting or you're composing something, it's terrifying because you don't know. If you're writing a book, you don't know how it's going to work out. And I think being around people who have that mindset is amazing energy to support you. Sitting in front of your computer and just typing... Is probably works for some people, but that's not really productivity the way I define it in a startup. That's not creative, that's not, you know, and and I think for better or for worse, that type of work is most likely to be disrupted by AI, like in the Mm -hmm. next five minutes. And I think people need to think about that when they look at their jobs of how much of what you're doing, because I always hear people say, like, don't measure me by my time, measure me by my results, and I think there's a double-edged sword there too. How so? If you know, if you only want to be measured by your result, and that result is now going to compete with AI. Like, let's say you're editing video, or you're you're a copy editor, and you only like you don't want to be really part of a company. You just want to be like a freelancer, you know, um, paid for results, and paid well for your results. I think is the assumption. Some of those things, if if AI ends up, um, you know, really being much better at say, 80% of your job um, and, you, and you have no connections to any company or any, any mission and you're indistinguishable from a bot at that point hmm. because nobody ever sees you. Well, it's either somebody overseas or ChatGPT is really going to come for your job. And I think that's something that, that people don't, don't think about.
0: I like that perspective. Very good. Um, one other thing I want to throw at you is hustle culture. So, you know, you've been there. There was probably times where you had to put in the 70-hour work weeks, you know. yeah. Um, or was there? Oh, Tell yeah. me a little bit about hustle culture and what your thoughts are that as you've been progressing yeah. in your career. Listen, like it, I, didn't even, I didn't even know what that word was for the first 23
1: years of my career. So I, I went when I was, um, so what not to do? I went like seven years when I started my first company without taking a vacation. One time I flew to Whistler to go snowboarding. And I was in the airport and then I got a call that I could go back and pitch a VC and I just turned around and went back. It was like the worst, (laughs) it was the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. I regret that. Um, But back in the day, it was, you know, it wasn't called hustle culture. It was just, you know, survive or grow. And it was just all, all, all 24-7. And I, I believe in hard work. Like don't start a company if you are not interested in working hard. Not because of... It's like some punishment, but because it's your passion, right? Like, like, I'll, probably everything I learned about business, I probably learned playing music, you know, business is a practice. It's not something you can just read a book. Like I can't, I can't say, Hey, you should read a book on how to play piano and then make you a better pianist. Like right. you have to practice. Right. And, and so there's so much I learned about repetition that, that I think applies to, to business, which applies to hustle, right? You have to practice. If you're bad at sales, you better practice that 70 hours so that you don't have to do that 70 hours later. But but I think where, we're, as I get older, I think the part that I figured out is that the, the problem with hustle culture is that if you're the founder or CEO, your your main job is to think and to, to make decisions. And that's really, it looks like it's easy because you're staring up the wall, like staring out the window. But how do you know what the right decision is? Right. You, you can't know it by typing. You can't know it by speaking and, and pitching and you have to know it by by thinking experience um, going for a walk taking time off like that's something that's i've probably really bad at until recently but you know for me like i meditate now and i that's probably been the best thing for my business performance is mm-hmm. throughout the day asking myself how do i actually feel before i start making a decision right so how do i, I feel emotionally mentally and meditating lets me figure that out and gives me focus. Um, back in the day, it was I don't know what to do. I'm just going to keep working harder. <laughs> that doesn't get you anywhere.
0: Right, right. Well, maybe that Whistler trip would have really helped you then. I know, I know. Regrets, regrets. <laughs> Did you go back to Whistler? I have, yeah, many
1: times after that. But, um, but that was a, that was a low low point. Okay.
0: So, um, tell me a little bit about uh, hockey stick and Flow Ventures and what you're doing now in your career. Uh, uh, Flow Ventures is almost is it 20 years old or almost 20 years old no it's like 16 17 wow. years time goes time goes by crazy yeah. so yeah tell me about flow ventures and hockey stick and yeah. where what you're doing now what are they
1: you know it's funny that like almost if i if i have some perspective now pretending i'm at the top of whistler looking back over my life um, but it's you know turns out what i really care about is is finance like entrepreneurial finance like how com- how companies raise money and how you know, broken the systems are and how silly the whole process is. And and to answer your question about what I'm doing, that the three main things I'm doing today are just really different sides of that. So so Hockey Stick was started to help companies raise really venture capital, right? Because we had identified, um, like we, we tried many things along the way before we got there, but the idea was, why is it so hard for entrepreneurs to meet VCs and, and get connected?
0: Especially here in Canada.
1: Yeah, and, and it's still... You know, it's still hard, right? It's it's kind of ridiculous. Um, so that that was trying to solve that problem, and we were using you know data and products, and and we still do that. Flow actually had started seventeen years ago helping companies raise everything but venture capital, so uh, grants and and loans and government programs and and things like that. And over the years, has raised about probably. $350 million for companies. So Amazing. it's been a, a really, it's been a, like a big seed fund, right, think of it that way. Um, and then the, the, the third part that I do is is working on teaching and writing. And what I teach and write about is also people fundraising. And I don't just talk about finance, but I talk about their pitches, um, their story, their strategy, and, and also connecting with VCs. And I, I ran these workshops called All Fundraising No Bullshit recently, hmm. um, as a way to kind of deprogram and kind of provide a bit of a different perspective, mostly just because I'm so frustrated with the whole process, kind of on behalf of, of founders. So those three things, hockey stick flow, all fundraising, no bullshit, and writing, it's really the same thing. so they've they've kind of merged into the Raymond portfolio of stuff that I'm doing. And it's it's a lot of fun because now, when I meet an entrepreneur, i'm I'm not just saying, you should go sign up for hockey stick or oh, you should be a client of flow or you should go to one of my workshops. It's, it's great when I work with somebody and I can look at their situation and say, I know you're talking to me because you want to raise money. And I literally did this yesterday um, on a zoom call. But I said, but why? Like, why are you raising money? Like, if you're two founders, you're both technical, why don't you spend the next year? You're not going to make very much money. But, you know, you why not spend the next year just building your product? Mm-hmm. And it might seem like, oh, it's not fair and it's suffering, but you're going to spend the next six months suffering trying to raise money. And then you're going to make a promise that you might not be able to keep. Uh-huh. And so having the perspective of like venture, non-venture, um, some coaching, some writing gives me the ability to just try to do the best thing for that entrepreneur. And, and that's what I care about. Like my whole career, if I do this another 25 plus
0: years, It'll always be working with founders. That's my that's my thing. I love that. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about the uh, funding cycle of an entrepreneur and what what the stages are? Define those stages for the people that uh, sure. have uh, that don't know, like the difference between you know angel versus yeah. pre series A, series A, etc. Um, but also, like, what is your POV on when should somebody be raising money at these mm. stages um, and things that you people should look out for? Yeah, yeah. I mean.
1: I'll, I'll assume that we're talking about like a tech you know tech startup not a services company um, but I think the first thing is like don't define your stages based on the financing like even saying angel seed series A it, it's all meaningless right it means nothing it's and that's like don't don't define yourself by by what the funders say because the reason they call themselves those terms is that's their context you don't really need to care about that and so I hate when people get it like I'm raising my Pre, post, pre-seed, extension—it's like who cares? <laughs> it's, it's money, okay? So yeah, you're raising money. Let's just all agree to that. So I think like for me, if I if I kind of decode that a little bit, at the beginning, when you start, you you you're really forming the company. So like forget the labels, whatever you call it. It's you don't know what you're doing and you don't know who you're working with. So that's the beginning stage. And for some people, that's um, they want to raise money. Some people they do an accelerator. Some people they do a consulting business. Um, some people, they just build. But I think this stage of just, it's just like forming the thing, the, the the hypothesis. That's the, just the, just call it company formation. And then you've got this stage of like, you know, typically other people call it like angel seed or, you know, seed to series A. But really it's, it's kind of like experimentation. And no matter how certain you are when you go out there, it doesn't even matter if you've got revenue. You know. Until you have a view to like a scalable business model, which could take you like five years, right? I don't know how long it would take you, but you just you're you're just experimenting, and and that's where you build your intellectual property. So everyone's in such a rush to get through there, like oh we we went through our pre-seed in six months and now raising our blah blah blah. It's great, it, it's great if it worked for you, but in reality, that place where you're failing and you're pivoting and you're you're trying things out, that's your Intellectual property—that's hmm. your research. That's when you're going to earn everything you're ever going to know about your company is right there. And and one of the problems is we're trying to rush companies too quickly because we want to get them funded. But who cares about the funding? They just make a great company. So the but to relate it back to the funding question, if you can survive that period—I didn't say it's easy, by the way—I'm just saying that's just life. But if you can survive that period. What's fundable, whether it's a seed or a series A kind of round, is they're funding something that is starting to look like a business. It's not complete. You might Your team might not be complete. Your tech is not complete. Your market or revenue is not that great. But it's, it's starting to look like something. So that is, is a milestone where investors saying, I'm investing in, I know what I'm investing in. Whereas before, if you're able to raise the pre-seed money, it's, I don't know what I'm investing in. So when I was running Year One Labs um, and uh, we were just open, as like we have absolutely no idea whether your idea is going to work. We assume it won't work. But most investors still, like the, the pitch at the beginning is still the idea, which I find really silly. Um, so, so then after series, series A, whatever, if we want to use labels, then now you're measured more, it, it becomes less venture capital actually, right? It becomes more your revenue and growth and potential cash flows and it really becomes more like you're fundable because you're a good company and there's actually competition. VCs have competition mm-hmm. to put money in but if they got in early they've got those pro rata rights. That's, that's the whole model. So I think later on and, and we're starting to see this in the kind of ecosystem too thing we were talking about before. There is more competition. Like People are buying and operating. This company Tiny out in Victoria has been buying and and buying companies that were venture funded and restructuring them and operating them as dividend generating profitable companies cool. so i don't know them i just saw them but um i love that model right so i think that it's kind of a didn't quite answer your question but no I, but, but, but it, I wanna, very
0: interesting along the way yeah like, don't it's, don't don't define it by how these vcs are just yeah. really focus in on like what is it that you're trying to accomplish in raising money, and don't just raise money for the sake of it? Because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs go into it like, okay, we have to raise our angel round, and yes. then pre-series A, yeah. and then yeah. series A, and they try and like fit their business model yeah. into those traditional naming conventions or rounds, yes, instead of the other way around, which I think is really refreshing uh, insight. You have to have your own point of view, right? So I think that
1: you know one of the one of the mistakes people make is thinking there's a standard, and I always say, well. What is a startup? Startup is you're trying to like break things, disrupt industries. You know all these startups that that like the Ubers and the Airbnbs are things that we we weren't doing mm-hmm. ten years ago, twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't just follow a playbook. Another you know here's another um, uh, kind of hot take, kind of statement is like you can't actually learn from other people's success. So tell me a bit about that. What do you mean? Like when you study, like so many people, that say, study the Airbnb pitch deck. And I always think, I always tell them, don't I've do that. i studied the Airbnb it's, pitch it's deck. It's not a good pitch deck. Like the seed deck, it's not a good pitch deck. I've written about this. That, and, and I think the reason that we think it's a good pitch deck is because Airbnb subsequently became successful. But you don't know that, you have no evidence that the pitch deck is what made them successful. And I have evidence <laughs> that it actually probably hurt them. But it's... It's I think we the reason that we go for these standards like series A, Series B, this is because we we like to put people on pedestals. And when we see a successful entrepreneur, like I love when people on 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 Twitter say, I just raised my a ten million dollar series A, here's how you can do it. And that's like saying, like, I I just did surgery, heart surgery once in my life. And and the patient hasn't died yet. So here's I'm gonna tell you how to be a surgeon. Uh, Right? hmm. You have no repetitions on how to do that. Doesn't mean that you're wrong, by the way, right? You can be right, but you You know, there's this idea that since one person did it this way, you know, Airbnb, Facebook, any successful company, we should follow it. But what people don't realize that out of, I think there was a study that out of 21,000 venture-backed companies, uh, only 100 return 50x return or more. So Mm -hmm. these really nice, juicy returns. That doesn't mean there's lots of other crap companies in there, but it means that we're not hearing those stories. We're not hearing the stories of maybe... Great companies, great founders, great returns for the founders, and decent returns for the VCs, where we're not following their pitch decks, so you don't hear about that. And so that's what I mean: is you can't
0: always learn as much I like about that. success as you think. I like that. Um, okay, we're gonna wrap with a couple last questions. Um, it's been amazing having you on. Like you are a you are a philosopher <laughs> of uh, of startups. Okay, I love how the way you always bring it back to like more of a conceptual. Or, fra- um, or philosophical framework on how we approach these questions. Really like that about you. Uh, it's That's usually something that I find with people that have been doing things for a long time yeah, is true. that younger people usually take a very technical approach on answering questions versus the people that I've, um, masters of their craft, I would have to say, they use concepts, stories, and frameworks to, to um, uh to spread like knowledge, yeah. Versus younger people, they're more technical and like, yeah. It, it, it's not
1: for lack of trying. Like I've tried all those top ten ways to do whatever, and it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Okay. So a uh, couple. So a la- couple last questions. First thing is, um, what's a technology or industry or space that is interesting you right now for the future? Well, obviously, like everything related to AI
1: and and, but it, it's not really an industry. But I think that. We're just in for a shitstorm of change and societal change, and but I think if I bring it right back to startups, I think that people, like everyone assumes that because AI is so, you know, it's hot and it, it's so disruptive that it's the next venture capital industry. I actually think that maybe the biggest bigger disruption going back to ecosystem too will be AI will allow 10,000 entrepreneurs to create very similar products where it's not winner take all. It's just, they each make $2 million a year and it's mm. amazing. Mm. So, interesting. you know, maybe the next Shopify is not a Shopify, you know, f- venture funded. It's 5,000 things that look kind of like Shopify,
0: they're commodities, but they're, they're owned by the, the owners, right? And it's a good business for Shopify to do. Interesting. And um, so what do you think are one to two characteristics that you've been working, you have the repetition yeah. of working with so many entrepreneurs what are like maybe one to three uh, characteristics that you find make that similar across the ones that succeed?
1: Yeah, I think
0: maybe I'll
1: boil it down to two things because I actually don't, I don't like saying characteristics because I, I feel like it makes people feel like, oh, if I don't have that, I'm, I'm not cut out to be, you know, an entrepreneur. And I think everyone potentially could be, it's, it's not for everyone, but everyone potentially could be as a difference. I think number one is you have to have some self awareness of knowing what makes you happy, you know? It's like, don't be a doctor because your parents tell you to be a doctor. And same thing. It's like if you don't know yourself, then it's really hard to start a company because there are so many moments that are not enjoyable. And, and you'll just be very confused. Mm-hmm. And and I I would say that's like a big part of my career, just why am I doing this? And but the other part, maybe more kind of more nuts and bolts, is the the founders I I find that are most successful are the ones that that are really open to learning, that they see it as a craft. So it's, I'm not just so anxious to get to the result, because we all fantasize about the result. But I, I really see myself learning. I want to learn. I'm studying. I'm reading. I'm not looking just for the shortcuts. I'm looking for opportunities for me to practice. It Goes right back to music. That's, that's how you become a good musician and an artist. It's, you don't think about getting up on stage at Carnegie Hall, or maybe you do. But what really, really makes your soul alive is you in the practice room playing and feeling. Oh, that was.
0: This is why I'm doing this. Amazing, amazing. Um, okay, where can people find you online or get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, easiest way is um, RaymondLook.co. That's my my newsletter, my Substack. They can always reach me there, and subscribe, of course. Um, And then LinkedIn. So uh, I'm pretty active um, talking, commenting, publishing on LinkedIn. Okay, amazing.
0: Last question. We ask this to everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, What's one... Okay, last question. What is one piece of wisdom that you wish you knew much sooner? I wish that
1: I... I wish early, early in my career that I would have kind of surrounded myself with more founders. Like, a you know, I do that now with founder groups, but, you know, I wish that it would have been less lonely. And I wish that I would have understood that if I just find, you know, even one or two or three other people um, and, and kind of form a group and help each other like a cohort, a little peer group, um, I wish that I would have done that at the beginning because it would have been a, a lot more enjoyable journey. But I would have realized that all those times I beat myself up for doing something, and thinking like I'm such a loser because this person quit. Well, that happens to everybody. I just I just didn't know it.
0: Amazing, yeah, that's true. Because being an entrepreneur can be lonely. Yeah. And uh, if you're not talking with other people and realizing, yeah, what I'm going through, other people are going through, it'd be pretty hard. Yeah, totally. Just a different perspective. Raymond, you are absolutely amazing. This has been a, a pleasure for me as nice. an entrepreneur myself. Um, I'd love to have you on again to talk about other things in the future because an hour flew by, but we could probably go for another hour. Well, I'd love to come back. Thank you very much. Cheers. Much appreciated. Thanks. Until next time, what they didn't teach you in school. Ciao.